You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The day you show up, they're like, everything you hear about this place being a cult is a lie. It's the media twisting things, you know, much like Christians do today. They blame the media for twisting things or, you know, but basically, no, they just investigate it. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode two, Rachel. I I do remember once though, I ended up in the Kansas City Star. I was at the coffee shop just having coffee with a friend. And this guy was like, can I take a picture of you from Kansas City Star doing a piece on IHOP? And we were like, cool. And then we were on the front page and it's like, use cult, this and that and the other. And I was like, kind of laughing. <laughs> I just didn't know I was going to be in this article called Youth Cult, The House of Prayer, blah, blah, blah. But we got in trouble for that. Don't let anyone take your picture. Don't let anyone interview you because they're just trying to twist things and call this place a cult. This episode, Rachel Bailey's journey at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. And with her story and grievances, we're going back to the early days of IHOP before the student awakening, before the church leadership was ever really put to the test. Okay. Hi, I'm Rachel. I live in Houston, Texas. I'm a nanny, and I am married with two dogs. That's pretty much the gist of my life as far as my day-to-day. So that's Rachel's life now. But back in the early 2000s, she was at IHOP, and she was an intern, which meant that she had accepted IHOP's invitation to set apart a time to encounter God and help keep the flame alive in the 24-7 prayer room. IHOP's website describes an internship as a season of worshiping Jesus, studying the Word, engaging in works of justice, ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, and contending for the full release of the Lord's kingdom purposes. But being an intern also meant that she was raising her own money to be there. In Rachel's case, it means that her home church was sending monthly financial support through IHOP's payroll. But in general, it works kind of like funding a mission trip. You ask your family and your friends or inspire other supporters to donate money so that you can go. Except you're not going to build churches in Africa like a normal missionary, you're going to hardcore pray and worship in Kansas City. So the trailer, I remember very distinctly because it was a musky, like very dingy (laughs) environment. Rachel was one of the very first interns. So she remembers when IHOP was still praying and worshiping 24-7 in a small old trailer on Grandview Street so not far from where IHOP is now. And I've heard this space referred to as the trailers, plural. I think that makes sense because to me anyway, it looks like two school portable type trailers put together to make a larger space. And outside there was a sign that read, the International House of Prayer, a citywide ministry of worship and spiritual warfare. And this, this is where it all started with Mike Bickle, IHOP's founding leader. And inside. The musicians obviously were center focused, but no stage, just one flat level, folding metal chairs, very simple. And I remember 
the flags of every nation across the front. And Mike Bickle had a plastic like table with a metal folding chair that he sat at that anyone could just walk up to him. So that's a huge contrast to what the prayer room looks like now. It used to be like a one room, like almost like a studio apartment, you know? And there's just like a break room and a room for debriefing for musicians and, you know, some offices in the back, but so, so, so tiny. And I just remember how loud the music was too in that, that tiny little space. If I was working parking outside for a meeting, I could hear the music so loud and just the the loud prayers of people too, because there's lots of moaning or screaming or shouting singing in tongues super loud like a whole trailer full of people singing in tongues and to me that was like at the time amazing I thought that was amazing at the time um so that's the trailer but then Rachel also remembers moving into the new space the revamped strip mall on Redbridge Road where the prayer room remains today I remember when we were setting up, they had us write scriptures on the concrete floor before they laid the carpet. And we thought that was really cool that we were part of something like that. And they made a big deal about it. And in the back were some extra rooms for just miscellaneous use, which in my experience was like casting out demons or trying to make someone's leg grow back. And in my day there, I never saw any of that actually happen. I just saw a lot of that trying to make that kind of stuff happen in those rooms. They had one room for terminally ill people who could have an actual nurse in there. And the nurse who worked in there was my actual friend. Then the back of um, the building was just offices, debriefing room. And it was a huge change from what we came from, from the trailer anyways. Mike slash IHOP would eventually spend millions on renovations. It's got its own kitchen, a coffee shop. Tell me about what Mike was, I know you touched on a little bit what it was like in the trailer with Mike, but in general, what kind of leader was he? So I know that we knew as interns that he lived a very simple life. He always drives like a Honda Civic or something and lives in a little tiny town home and makes a big deal about living simple like that and setting an example like that. So we all had respect for him in that regard because, you know, a lot of ministers don't live that way or appear to live that way. I just don't know, like, for a fact, like, anything about him because he's very standoffish, especially when we moved to the new prayer room. His new little office was way up on the stage with one-way mirror and no one goes up there and everyone leaves him alone. He he explained it like, I am an intercessor. I am here to pray, you know, or sometimes teach and preach, but mostly his job was to pray. And that's what he wanted to do with his life. And so he didn't really like being interrupted. The first time Rachel met Mike was on her first day at IHOP during a tour of the space. And I was just walking by him. I wasn't even going to say hello because you just don't know your first day there, like if that's even appropriate. And he actually put his hands around my throat and pinned me against the wall when I was just walking by. And he said, you see this girl right here? 
I like this girl. And he could sense from me that I was extremely uncomfortable. I wasn't like my airway wasn't blocked, but I just, the fact that there's a dude is putting his hands on me at all was weird to me. The one thing he did say after the incident, because I think she picked up on the fact that I was uncomfortable. She said, oh, I'm sorry. You'll get used to me. I was raised in bars. You know, my dad was a boxer. So you'll get used to me, you know, like he didn't so much say sorry, but he was just like, oh, this is just how I am. And everybody knows it. Basically, I get away with this. <laughs> this is just how I am. I'm the leader. And it, it came across that way. A lot of times he will whisper in the singer's ear when you're on the stage. And it always was so, I was so scared that he was going to come try to whisper to me, but I'm very tall and he's very short. So he never ever made contact after that. Um, but I just know that I was uncomfortable around him. And so I don't know him very well, actually. I just was intimidated by this like male presence. I don't know of anyone else who remembers this specific interaction that Rachel alleges she had with Mike, but others that I've spoke with about it have witnessed Mike doing things like grabbing people by the shoulders and, you know, giving them a little shake shaking the love of Jesus into you, sort of like a father, maybe. And I'm not at all trying to play down what Rachel says happened to her because nobody should ever be touching you in a way that's not welcome, especially someone in a position of power. But I think it's important to understand what seems to me anyway, like part of IHOP culture surrounding Mike, back then anyway, and that's that he did have this reputation of being, yeah, the son of a tough boxer. And that meant that sometimes... Roughhousing was his love language? But that aside, how about what others, what other former IHoppers have told me about their impressions of Mike? Even today, looking back, I, I can't help but like the guy because he's extremely affable and has a quick intellect. My first impression was he was a very smiley dude. He's always smiling about something. I don't know. He seen, and he seemed pretty um, amicable. I mean, I liked him right away. He's a very charismatic speaker. I think he's a bit more level-headed than a lot of the other leaders in the charismatic movement. His sermons tended to emphasize things like humility and the Sermon on the Mount, which is the central text in Christianity and how you can live out being a Christian in the mundane world. So that was a lot of the good things that I've heard about Mike. I've heard lots of good things about Mike. But I've also heard impassioned criticisms, too. I don't know if he realizes that the prophetic history and all of that stuff is ridiculous, or if he really believes it. The prophetic history. It is an impassioned important part of IHOP culture, and this is me putting into words what I think it is myself after a bunch of nosing around, but it's a it's a collection of about 25 prophetic experiences, so like stories, curated by Mike, that are believed to prove the significance of IHOP and its role in the future, its role in the return of Jesus, and in the end of days. For example, one of the major prophecies that is part of the prophetic history that is yet to come true is that IHOP will be involved in an end-of-time revival that will, quote, 
change the understanding of Christianity as we know it. Now, this revival, they believe, will include things like parades for Jesus and stadiums filled with prophetic singers and people being healed and saved in enormous numbers. Rachel was amongst the very first IHOPers to be introduced to the prophetic history, and let's just say she's not a fan. They really started the brainwashing during my internship as far as like having to go to the meetings. Like now they just make you listen to the recording of the prophetic history. We had to go to the meetings where Mike was recording the prophetic history and they made such a big deal about it. So yeah, sounds like during Rachel's internship in the early 2000s, that's when Mike was recording the prophetic history for posterity. So he was on stage in front of a live audience, including Rachel, and he's talking about, you know, he's sharing in depth about these mythical-like prophecies and supernatural encounters. This stuff is IHOP lore. IHOP legend. And I remember just being like, I don't get it. Like, what is this about? Because it's not the Bible. It's not, like, it's just about there's something crazy gonna happen here that I don't understand. And the stories are like, Mike goes past the moon and he's transported to heaven and just crazy stuff. And so I kind of disassociated myself. Since this is such a sticking point for Rachel in her IHOP journey, and pretty much everyone I've spoken with brings their take on it up, I figure early on in this season, this would be a good time to just stop down for a moment and learn more about this prophetic history. Because even if you think it's rubbish, it's still pretty fascinating. It includes lots of special dates and special symbols. You are from day one, I will use the word indoctrinated, with the prophetic history. That again is Sean from Seattle. He was once an intern at IHOP. This would have been after Rachel's time, but he also remembers all about the prophetic history. Here's how he describes it. And that is basically a mix of Mike Bickle's story and his navigating his life to this current moment through the eyes of God speaking to him about starting IHOP in the church. And these stories go back primarily to the 1970s and 80s, when Mike Bickle was connected with a bunch of like-minded Christians who also said some pretty far-out, crazy-sounding stuff, just like him. They were a bunch of trusted prophets, a group of mostly men who really spurred on the prophetic movement with the impacts that they made together. And over time, they became known, to some anyway, as the Kansas City Prophets. They included Mike and a few other household names in these circles, guys like Paul Kane, John Paul Jackson, Rick Joyner. So uh, tell me, who were the Kansas City Prophets? And obviously all the, <laughs> all the questions I'm asking you is just your take on it, your knowledge, what you know of it. Uh, so yeah, Giver, who were the Kansas City Prophets? Good night. Okay, so I haven't heard them called that in a very long time. We did not refer to them as the Kansas City Prophets in the IHOP community. Um, they were sometimes referenced as that, but 
there is definitely a pullback and something that you'll notice in, in the whole of the prophetic history of IHOP is there is a continuous changing of narrative or pulling certain parts of the story away, whether it's a prophetic word that didn't come to fruition, whether it's a person that was heavily relied on in the prophetic history that did bad things and had to be kind of removed from those stories to make the 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 core of the story not seem weakened by certain individuals. That being said, there are multiple other voices, prophetic, supposedly, you know, supposedly prophetic people that pop in and out of the storyline throughout for various reasons. Again, some of those people are named once and never mentioned again because of they had to be removed from the story for the story to keep its um, truth intact or to keep people from questioning all that much. One of the primary prophets we're talking about here is Bob Jones, IHOP's founding prophet and the source of many of its most iconic prophecies. He is as mysterious of a figure as you want your main prophet to be. Um, he is Merlin to Mike Bickle's King Arthur. He is kind of the figurehead and the voice of God or the person who can hear from God that kind of helps in the story, helps minister Mike through starting IHOP. Bob Jones was born in 1930, Arkansas, son of farmers. He grew up in the Great Depression, poor, very poor. And according to his own personal testimony, he was just nine years old when he says God sent an angel to tell him about his calling in the prophetic world. And although he still went on to be a wild drinking man with a history of being hospitalized for mental health issues, he would age to become, according to IHOP at least, one of the greatest prophetic voices in modern history. Bob Jones is the guy. Sean says he heard the story of how Mike and Bob first met many times. It was the spring of 1983. This unusual Southern gentleman um, comes up to him and starts telling him that he's going to start this youth movement that God's told him about and that he should start to prepare to see dreams and get encounters. Mike Bickle still tells this story a lot today. He shared it during this interview on the Bible Beaters podcast. He walks into my office. I'm 27 years old. I'm 67 now. And he's a total stranger to me. And the day he meets me and he says, uh, uh, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. But that was just Mike's first encounter with Bob Jones. After that, Mike would receive numerous prophecies from him that would greatly impact his life and his ministry. I'm laying on my bed. I'm wide awake, my wife is laying next to me, and I hear this thunderous voice that says, I have a message for you. Call Bob Jones. I, I couldn't believe I heard it. It was so thunderous. It was like coming from 20 miles away and yet coming out of my belly. It felt like it was coming in stereo in two places. It was so stunning. I was just like paralyzed by it. And my wife is sound asleep. I went, oh, my God. She goes, it was about six in the morning. She goes, what? I go, oh, I'm sorry. Did you hear that? She goes, no. I get up. Bob Jones calls me and says, 
I got a message from the Lord that he told me to call you today and give it to you. In this case, Mike says the message from the Lord was about what God was going to expect of him as the leader of this really important youth movement that was going to spring directly from his ministry. He wanted humility. He was so in April 1984, that became so real to me. I began our worship teams, our preachers, our prophetic people. I said, you cannot put hamburger helper in what you're doing. The Lord is really important because one day there's this thing is going to multiply to millions of young people, which didn't make any sense to me. There's no internet. Nobody knows me. But I go, we're going to have singers and musicians. I mean, the day I met Bob Jones, he told me that 40 years ago. He said, you're going to have singers and musicians. And Mike definitely has singers and musicians. And with the help of the internet, yes, a ministry that reaches millions. But that's just one of Bob Jones' numerous prophecies that are believed to have come true. There's also this one about a comet. This one got Bob a lot of attention. There's going to be a comet that nobody um, sees coming that's going to come through the sky that's going to prove that I'm a messenger God. Well, that's the thing is that um, the comet did come. That's what was the, like. the comet came. And so the legend goes, Brother Bob predicted that on May 7th, 1983, there would be a comet in the heavens that no scientist or astronomer anywhere in the world had discovered or predicted. Those were his words. And wouldn't you know it, a new comet was discovered just a few weeks later the news of it showing up in Kansas City newspapers on May 7th. One of the headlines I came across read, May's Surprise Comet. And that's fun, but new comets are discovered all the time. 10 to 12 per year is totally normal. Although this comet was special, it would be the closest confirmed comet to Earth in over two centuries. And visible to the naked eye, as a distant, fuzzy smudge of light. If there's anything about Bob Jones I want you to take away from all that, it's that, along with the rest of the Kansas City prophets, he was incredibly influential on the prophetic history. But so was an angel, a specific angel, that Mike claims has visited him on more than one occasion. Oddly enough, uh, the first time I saw him was in October. I, one time in, in a trance encounter, he stood in front of me. I was in a dream state. He had a white robe on, the black hair. I was looking straight in his eyes. I wasn't looking at his hands. He had a scar. I don't know. Did he have sandals? I don't know. I was looking, kneeling straight, transfixed at his face. He was not strikingly handsome or not handsome. He was just a guy that I was staring at and his eyes captivated me. That was in October 1978, right in front of me and talked to me directly. I went, oh my God, what? I'm looking at an angel. Prophetic history of IHOP is its core and it's what everything has to stand on. I would even argue it is almost more important than the Bible. IHOPers that are currently there, if they are listening to this, will completely disagree with me. But as someone who was there and lived through that and then had to go to therapy <laughs> after their, their time periods at IHOP, I'm, I'm going to say uh, the reason why my wife and I left was because of the Bible. 
because what was going on there was a different gospel than what Christ was teaching. I mean, they have a prophecy that says like, (laughs) IHOP is this white horse in a stream and there are rabid dogs standing around the stream. And the stream is this healing anointment that's supposed to come across a group of believers, young people doing a house of prayer. They're going to be anointed with the spirit of healing and the river is going to overflow. And that, so the white horse is the church. The stream is the, is the prayer and worship movement. And there is a bigger river coming down that is going to anoint them with healing. But in the process, They are surrounded by rabid dogs. This horse is surrounded by these rabid dogs that can't get into the water. And the interpretation of those dogs are other Christian believers saying what you are doing is is unsafe, unhealthy, not Christianity. It is anyone who critically analyzes or questions anything that IHOP does. That is a core prophecy of what IHOP is. So as a member of IHOP, you are told anyone who questions what we are teaching here is considered a rabid dog. My dog is itching his face. I'm so sorry. It's awesome. I actually love including (laughs) the dog noises in my pod. Every season has had the presence of a dog at some point. I love it. Well, my dogs will love being superstars. You have to turn your critical thinking off to be good at IHOP. You, you cannot question, you have to be willing to hear what is spoken and do those things, or you are the potential of becoming a rabid dog. Because the rabid dogs, if they bite you, you will become, whether it's logical or whether, whether it's, you are a rabid dog. I currently, like just by talking to you, everyone, every XI hopper that talks to you, that knows this, that we will potentially be used in the community to prove prophetic words. Like, I am doing exactly what some of their prophecies say, which is good, you know, quality people will tell you that what you are doing is wrong and you are not to listen to them. You are to be the white horse, stay in the stream and ignore all those people who are telling you that uh, your critical thinking has been turned off and you, you seem to not be willing to, to hear any side of the story. And if they continue doing that, your leadership will probably, me being a leader at IHOP at a period of time, your leader will probably tell you to either consider disconnecting from that person entirely, whether that is an immediate family or loving friends or uh, leadership from back home, Christian leadership from back home. I have interacted with people that have had all of those things happen to them and that uh, uh, and all of them have either had to leave IHOP or they've cut those people off. As an IHOP intern, what kind of work were you assigned to do? Okay, well, that's a very interesting question because I was actually upset at my assignment. I was assigned for six months to clean toilets. Back to Rachel Bailey and her experience as an IHOP intern. And a lot of other people had cool jobs, media, or like something fun, which is what I thought I was signing up for. There were some people that were working in the cafeteria 
some people that were doing like manual labor, a lot of the guys got manual labor jobs, but a few people, I guess, with skills. I mean, I was barely 18, so I didn't have like that many skills. So they're just like, here, clean toilets. But then, of course, she also had her prayer room hours, classroom hours, and other responsibilities. But Thursdays, Thursdays were your day off. Unless you got into trouble. There was this thing called Thursday Club. If you, like, for instance, I was late five minutes to a prayer meeting, like my first week of the internship, because I just didn't realize, like, how strict it was going to be. And I'm just, like, coming from a homeschool situation. So I don't know really like the big deal of five minutes at that time. So my group leader comes to me and says, you know, you have Thursday club. And I was like, what, why? So that's another work day, basically. So they'll have you wear these shirts that say Thursday club on them. So everyone knows you're in trouble. And then you clean gum off the concrete outside the prayer room or something hard. But um, I never felt a lot of dignity For my job, it was just really grunt work, if you ask me. But I know every intern had a different experience. And I did voice my concern because this guy that was in charge, basically my supervisor, really scared me. And as a 17, 18-year-old girl, I just wasn't who I am now. Now I would never let someone treat me that way. But he would grab my arm and push me down on the floor and say, does this look clean to you? I didn't think so. You know, you didn't dust the the ledge under this bench or something. Just to me, I was just like, wow. And, you know, Mike would always talk about the spirit of excellence and being a servant and being humble. And, you know, but to me, it was a really degrading job. I kept trying to tell myself, like, this is what I'm doing for God's kingdom or, but looking back, like, it was just, it was just grueling work that I hated. But Rachel wouldn't stay an intern her entire time at IHOP. She would eventually wind up on staff. Even still, staff are also required to raise their own financial support. And according to a source, the only roles that are actual paid positions are things like HR and facilities. But before Rachel moved on to staff, I was kind of interested to hear about how IHOP reacted when she did speak up about the way she was being treated as an intern. You know, I don't remember the specifics of the conversation. I just remember saying, hey, he grabbed my arm and he's being kind of like mean. And it wasn't so like it wasn't some crazy thing that had happened to me. It was just like accumulation of small things. And I wasn't handled. It was just brushed off of like you're an intern and interns do work and it's hard work and you signed up for this. And I paid almost three thousand dollars to be there. I just don't feel like I got a lot out of it, except I realize now that it's just a huge brainwashing session, basically. Whenever something bad happened and I voiced it, it wasn't addressed. I was brushed aside and I learned to just dissociate instead of, you know, stand up for myself. I just learned to just kind of assimilate. I've given IHOP the chance to comment on some of the finer points of Rachel's story especially in regards to Mike's behavior and interactions with interns, but I haven't heard back. Sounds like there were a lot of different rules for students and staff, for everyone at IHOP. What are some of the standout rules that you remember having to abide by? In the internship, they are 
written rules. You cannot date, you cannot um, drink or go somewhere. Have, like we couldn't even go to Applebee's because there's a bar there. And so for staff, they encourage you to only drink at home. Some kids that were interns after me got in trouble for having their hands stamped. They went to a concert, which is considered a drinking establishment. So they got Thursday club, they got in trouble. We socialized in our backyards with like games and we made it, you know, we were young. So we made it as fun as we could, but we never like went anywhere other than to each other's homes. And so that was strange. Another aspect of Rachel's IHOP experience that was maybe not strange, but definitely something that was a really supercharged aspect of her time there and most people's time there. And that's fasting. I did my best and I was pressured to do like my own 21 day or 40 day fast. And I could never do more than seven days. It just, I struggled and I was skin and bone also. So I did a seven day water fast. And honestly, I started to realize why people have spiritual experiences when they fast, because yeah, you hallucinate when you're hungry. According to IHOP's website, regular fasting should be a part of a normal Christian lifestyle. They say it's biblical, but never mandatory. And fasting is part of what IHOP describes as the fasted lifestyle, where you are called to these extreme measures of devotion. So like long hours of praying and worshiping in the prayer room or, you know, these regular stretches of days without food. And know this too, as you can imagine, being the leader, Mike Bickle is himself a big fan of fasting. I loved it. At, at day 30, I wanted to eat, but I didn't want the 30 days in the room to be over because it was so serene. It was beautiful, but it had to be over because there's human processes, there's human responsibilities, your body can't take it. Again, on the IHOP website, it states that the physical impacts of fasting are real and the spiritual benefits of fasting are undeniable. And there's actually a ton of scientific research that backs up the potential benefits of fasting. I looked into it. It can improve concentration, decrease inflammation, and lower anxiety. But it can also increase anxiety, irritability, and fatigue. And I really think what Rachel's experience and others speaks to is the challenging time that any organization might have keeping their entire community safe when fasting is common practice. Here's what other former IHoppers had to share with me about their experience fasting. You would just be drinking water um, for sometimes like, you know, days on end, you know, and that was very encouraged and seen as like, you were really intense. You were really like going after the things of God if you were participating in those things. That's Austin Williamson from Minneapolis. He was once a popular worship singer at IHOP. 2002 to 2012. We needed to almost, yeah, like get clean, if you will. And it was like in order to serve in the house of prayer, one had to have clean hands and a holy heart um, in order to be able to kind of do the work that we were going to do. Well, what about people with eating disorders, right? And that's Micah Pryor. He spent eight years at IHOP up until 2014. What about people with anorexia? or bulimia, you know, and these practices are being promoted 
to become holy. And here's Natalie. She's actually from Kansas City originally, and she spent nearly 10 years there. The end game to fasting. I wish I knew the exact phrase they used to use, but it was basically that we're opening our hearts to more of God. And knowledge of God was the end game. Rachel Bailey says that for her, the fasting aspect of IHOP life was traumatizing. And the longer you're there, the more you want to do because you always feel like you're behind on whether it be the prophetic thing that God's doing or you just don't want to miss out on this, that, and the other. And just the diligence of meetings, like so many meetings. It just made me feel like I was going crazy. And it made the meetings also so much more intense, pacing in the aisles, speaking very loudly in tongues. It was like hard for me to even concentrate on praying because it was so chaotic loud and people screaming on the mic. I mean, when people are fasting, it's almost like they really become different people. Like the whole atmosphere changes. And at first I was like, okay, this is fasting. And then I just realized like, no, this isn't healthy. People were like, oh no, you're just more spiritually hungry because you're physically depriving your flesh. So you're more spiritually. I'm like, no, I'm actually like physically losing my mind. So I just felt like it was a way to control us. I don't feel like, and that's just my opinion. I don't know if that's the intent was pure or not, but towards the end, I was so burnt out on this fasting nonsense that I just absolutely refused to go to any meetings that last year that I was there. That's when they came out with what's called the sacred trust. And you fill out this piece of paper of when you're going to be in the prayer room. And you have so many people who sign that paper who are going to make sure you're in the prayer room for those meetings, make sure you're fasting for those meetings, and you put it on the wall of the lobby. So it's not even private. They just always require more and more requirements. And I'm working 90 hours a week for them. I remember staying up once for 72 hours, just 72 hours because of having to be up at night and day. Like it was so toxic. In your knowledge, has it ever been paused for any reason? Did it ever actually stop? No, not to my knowledge. There was even a few times I was asked to get up and play because like somebody didn't show up. Like if if someone doesn't show up to do it, someone will start singing a cappella in in the crowd. Like it's that intense. And I remember two weeks the electricity was out in February, huge winter storm with ice. And we just did bongo drums and uh, acoustic guitar and singing in a circle, freezing our butts off, like shivering in a circle, trying to keep that fire going. So, no, I I would be so surprised if anyone had seen that ever happen, because that absolutely is the biggest deal there. Rachel has been a Christian pretty much her whole life. She grew up Catholic. First Catholic, then Lutheran, and then suddenly Foursquare Church, then suddenly in my teen years, Evangelical. So lots of confusion about that because my parents were also, I think, searching. But yes, always religious, always going to church five days a week. Um, And 
basically raised to think my only option for my future is ministry. You're going to be a missionary. You're going to be a pastor's wife. But she did not become a pastor's wife. And even though she still considers herself a Christian, she describes herself right now anyway to be in the middle of what a lot of people are calling deconstruction. Um, My faith in God is intact, but as far as my ability to process how I've known him my whole life is becoming very different. Um, I have just more questions than answers at this point, so I'm kind of in a very um, feeling unstable in that area. Although at the same time, my belief in a greater deity is there, and my desire to believe in heaven is there, but I'm just a little less sure because of coming out of such a strict um, view. And on, I would say a very extremist view. So I'm trying to just level out a little bit. What kind of scared me off was when they were pushing me to be a worship leader. And I was just like, no, I really don't have a desire to be a worship leader because I've seen the schedule and the demands of a worship leader. A worship leader, in any church, by the way, leads the music, so the singing. They also need to have the ability to guide the congregation on an emotional journey. And yeah, it's a lot of work. It takes time and talent and skill. And it's just, I have to be able to work. Like, I have to be able to make money. I only get so much money from my financial supporters. And I had to, like, babysit and work, you know, in my free time to try to pay for my life. And so couldn't afford to do full time. And they were like, oh, well, we can pay you a stipend of 500 a month if you want to be a worship leader. And I'm like, I'm a self-taught pianist. Like, I'm not even a real musician. I can't, I don't want to do it. Like, it's just, I like to dance. I like to sing. I have no interest in being a worship leader. It's like a golden cage to me. And they tried so hard. Like, this lady's going to teach you piano. And this person's going to, you know, they just wanted, I felt like they were trying to trap me there. This is actually, like, not okay. I mean, I'm not being paid. And so I went ahead and left staff because I knew it was a matter of time before I was going to get kicked out. But also in her personal journey at this time, there was something happening with Rachel that made leaving IHOP suddenly much easier. Her mom died. I think a lot of the pressure from my mom also is the reason it freed me up to leave because my mom put a ton of pressure on me to be in the ministry and to be in this particular ministry and made such a big deal about it, visit all the time. And somehow it, it just, I was tied to her in that way. So it kind of freed me up to like, I don't have to do this. Like, this is really her thing. So my mom was friends with someone who was actually a financial supporter of IHOP, like a big time financial supporter. So it was a big deal when they passed away together in an accident. Rachel told me about the funeral for her mom's friend, the IHOP financial supporter. She says IHOP sent a leader, like a representative, to pay respects, I imagine. But with Rachel having one foot out the door of IHOP, this is how she saw it. 
And at the time I was like, that's a nice gesture. But looking back, I think it's super weird. And he said he just wanted to be supportive. And he sat next to me for everything. And at one point he said, I just want to be Jesus to you. I just think God sent me here to be Jesus to you, to be supportive. So I thought, well, like I never expected IHOP to be supportive because they're just not that pastoral. I didn't expect them to be there at all. But now looking back, I think they just didn't want me to leave. I think, I definitely think that. So yes, on her way out the door, Rachel feels like there were deliberate efforts to get her to stay. A sticking point for her at this time, too, is that she says a leader that she hadn't had much to do with pulled her aside for a chat. And I've addressed this with him, and he says he does not remember this conversation. It was a long time ago, but he did this to all kinds of people. He'll pull me aside and say, God told me that if you go, you're going to fall into a life of sin. And I argued with him and said, well, that's ridiculous. I was a Christian before I ever came here. So I don't know why leaving here has anything to do with my faith status. And he wasn't even a person in my life, like a leader in my life. Like he was a prayer leader on the worship team that I was on, but like, I didn't even know him that well. So it seemed strange that suddenly I've been hidden for six years. Like no one could give me the time of day. And now I work 90 hours a week here and suddenly like, oh, she's leaving. Let's sneakily send leaders to her to suggest that we are here for you. It was just like, no, y'all aren't. Y'all aren't here for me. I got to go. So not long after her mom passed, Rachel finally officially talks to the dean at IHOP. She says she's struggling. She says she can't focus and that she's leaving. And I didn't say all the details of why, but there was just a lot of parts of my family falling apart. So I said, hey, I gotta go. I'm gonna go to nursing school, which totally wasn't true. I just didn't want to like divulge that my whole family's falling apart because they shame you for that. So that was like, I had to tiptoe around that because I didn't want people to say like, oh, she's leaving, but it did turn into that. It did completely cut all my ties all my friendships that were not, like as far as staff members, I have a very, very stretched relationship with them now, as far as like, you're an outsider now. People haven't even been like, hey, where are you? It's like, when you leave there, they burn you. Like, you're just not there anymore. And if you don't visit, it's, I went to a wedding a year later and it was so strange because I was like a ghost. And everyone's just like, so sorry to hear that you left and your life is now completely falling apart because you're not here. And I'm like, yeah, my life was falling apart before that. Thank you so much for all of that. That's like really heavy stuff. I'm so sorry about your mom. That must've been like so difficult. Um, I'm really curious. Do you imagine in your life ever being involved in organized religion again and attending a church? Like, is that at all a possibility for you in your life? Um, I've tried. But um, no, I really, I can say firmly, I'm probably not. I, I feel highly traumatically triggered just going to a, even a prayer meeting. I tried a few times to go to a few things. I tried to go to a church and I just, even if someone just touches me, I just can't. Like, I don't know what, it, I cannot explain it. But yeah, I just think there's too much trauma that's unresolved. And so going is not healthy for me. I can be involved in like, feeding the poor or like, you know, helping people. 
but I, I don't do worship services well or sermons well. Like I, the whole time I'm just coming out of my skin because how I used to see it and how I'm seeing it now, it's just a real trip. Like as far as trying to analyze it from this new viewpoint, I'm just like, I used to think this was normal. This is so crazy. Do you still have music in your life in any way? Like you played the piano, you were a singer. Is that gone from your life as well or? Um, pretty much um, the music part is gone as far as me doing the music. I have allowed myself to enjoy like heavy metal and rock music. And it's not a rebellious thing like, oh, I wasn't allowed to do this. So now I'm going to do it. I'm just genuinely curious now because the status of my soul no longer depends on it. Like if I were to have listened to that music before, maybe a demon would enter my life and I would be oppressed like by some darkness from that music. And so now I just have the freedom to just experience things without the fear of some spiritual darkness taking over my life. Music really is a special part of the IHOP experience. In the early days, Mike and the other leaders believed that it was music that would help them ignite the prayer movement and keep the flame in the prayer room going. And in many ways it did, especially since IHOP has found a way to attract a steady flow of some of the most talented young Christian musicians from across the country. And they've been doing that consistently now for decades. We'll get into that next on Heaven Bent with Austin. I loved worship. I loved music. And so for me, the idea of like being able to go to a school where that's what I would be learning sounded like something really cool to me at the time. I was excited and I wanted to do these things for God in my immaturity, but I just had no idea the measures of of what it would look like and how, how negative the impact would end up being in my life later on. 